Well, if you've been part of the Episcopal Church or even just had a passing knowledge of it for any length of time, you may know that we have, have what seems like more than our share of theological crises over the decades, to speak as charitably as possible about it. It almost seems like we go looking for them, seek to be always pushing the envelope, drawing nearer to the cutting edge where conflict is inevitable. Some may find this to be the curse of our church, a sign of spiritual erosion or degradation. I have come over the years to reject that way of thinking. I think indeed that it is the strength, perhaps even the calling, the special calling of our church among the many churches, to live at that place of challenge, to push the love and grace of Christ further into our hearts, into the church, into the world, often into places where it has not yet been welcomed. But why? Why would a church, a, dom a denomination like ours, have such a unique calling? We're not the biggest one or the most famous one or the most influential one, but I believe we were made to live in this place of challenge because that is where we were born. You see, as odd and as obscure as it may seem to us now, the Episcopal Church faced its first serious theological crisis at its very inception. Long before we had to wonder what to do about same-sex marriage or the ordination of people in same-sex relationships or the ordination of women or how to respond to divorce or birth control or new prayer books or new rituals or all of the other things we've met over the centuries over and over again, the very first thing we had to face was what to do about the king. You see, before 1776, there was no Episcopal Church. We were just the Church of England in these colonies, like the Church of England had been carried to English colonies in every part of the world. And since Henry VIII, the supreme governor of the Church of England, had been the monarch, the king, or the queen. But after 1776, that simply wouldn't work here anymore. Like it or not, and in all honesty, most Episcopalians did not like it at the time, like it or not, all the people and clergy of this church were now citizens of the United States of America, which had quite decisively rejected the authority of the king and swearing any oaths of allegiance to the king. And so our church faced an existential problem. How could we be who we are? How could we be Anglican? How could we be the Church of England and not be of England? How could we be the Church of England and not have any relationship with the King of England? Many doubted that it was even possible. Insisted that we must become something else than we were before. And in many ways, they were right. We held on to every scrap of the tradition we could manage, but in the end, the Episcopal Church came to be always Anglican, but not quite Anglican. 
We were based now on the more democratic principles of our new nation rather than as a church deeply connected to king and state as our mother church was and is. It was a workable solution to the problem, but never a really satisfying one of what to do about the king. Now since that time, our church, like our nation, has grown and nurtured a unique and intimate relationship with England. But it's not like the other nations of the Commonwealth. We don't have the same sort of relationship with the Queen and with England as our neighbors in Canada do. We are friends. We are the closest of friends. But we are not members of the family anymore. And so on September 8th, I was faced once again with that age-old problem of what to do about the queen. Because she was not our queen. And she was not the governor of our church. And yet, no matter how much we wish she might have been from time to time, because the bonds of spirit and history and affection made it clear that there was still some connection that required us to do something. She was the head of our mother church, even if we are its friendly but still a bit estranged child. She was the defender of the faith, and we can be proud to say that the expression of the faith, which was hers, is ours. But more than that, she was a person of sincere but gentle faith, of strong but calm courage, a woman who lived not for herself, but for her people, who set for us all for so graciously long a wonderful example of what it means to lead by love and grace, to lead like Christ. Her late majesty was a connection to a time past, perhaps the last connection on the global stage that we have. Now I'm no lover of nostalgia for nostalgia's sake, but neither do I like newness for newness' sake. There was much, much we must recognize about that time past that we can be thankful is no more. And other things that we should still strive to see done away with, but there is also much of value and beauty and one of those things which we lack now were the symbols of grace which transcended the tribes which we so naturally descend into that reminded us of things bigger than our own selves and of the kinship we share beyond all of our divisions in her kingdom, in her church, and in the world. It's just such a symbol of grace has been lost with her late majesty and I can only hope that we might ever see its like again. So tonight the question is easily answered what to do about the Queen. We honor her. We thank God for her. Cherish what bonds of friendship and communion we had with her especially in this church and to commend her to the rest promised to us all, 
and especially to God's good and faithful servants, of which she was certainly one. And now what to do about the king? Well, to pray for him a double portion of the blessing which was his mother's, her late majesty, Elizabeth II, defender of the faith of blessed and glorious memory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.